This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. As COVID-19 surges around the nation, the federal government has initiated Operation Warp Speed, aimed at delivering hundreds of millions of vaccines by early next year. But Americans have to be willing to get those shots. Dr. Nancy Messonnier leads the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases and the Center for Disease Control's COVID-19 vaccine efforts. She says the new vaccines can help protect individuals, but to stop the pandemic, lots of people need to get vaccinated, and that means they need confidence in it. If you can get educated about the process and the vaccines, you can help educate your family and your community. If you can take the time to understand the science, I hope that you'll then educate five more people and then five more besides that. And hopefully as the time that the vaccines become available gets closer, folks will feel good about rolling up their sleeves. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Science and Society program. Messonnier says the accelerated development of the COVID-19 vaccine has not reduced the scientific integrity of the approval process or the safety of the vaccines. She speaks with National Geographic science editor Seekon Akpan about these issues and the government's work to distribute them quickly and equitably. Here's Akpan. In late 2019, Dr. Messonnier directed the NCIRD to activate a center-based response to an unknown respiratory disease in China that later transitioned to a full agency response to the COVID-19 pandemic. In the COVID-19 response, Dr. Messonnier is leading the effort to support the COVID-19 vaccine program in the areas of distribution, administration, implementation, safety, and access for hard-to-reach populations with the goal of ensuring that a safe and effective COVID-19 vaccine is available for every American who wants one. And so I want to welcome Dr. Messonnier for this discussion, and I'm very excited to speak to you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. It's nice to see you. Before we get into the vaccine, I, I want to ask you a related question about the ongoing surge. So, you know, I think many expected this autumn and winter to be bad, but we're creeping toward averaging 200,000 cases per day. You know, last Tuesday we broke the single day record for deaths and then the next day we broke it again. Meanwhile, I've seen large crowds still going to malls and, and people are out in the streets protesting the closure of bars. There's clearly a COVID-19 fatigue going on. So how does the CDC and the rest of the American health enterprise go about convincing the public to take the pandemic seriously? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't think it's that people don't take the pandemic seriously. I think it's that people are tired. I'm tired of my kids homeschooling. And I just this week canceled our Christmas vacation. And I, you know, expect the American public, like I, we're tired. I think the thing that folks need to understand is that now's the time to really buckle down and follow the rules. And if we can all do that for a month, couple months, we can really get ourselves past this thing. I think it's a commitment. We need to keep each other safe. And the way to do that is to follow the rules. 
stay home, wear a mask. The United Kingdom's approval of the Pfizer vaccine was momentous, it was historic. And, you know, there are many more vaccines that seem to be on the way. You know, it's an undebatable win for science, the progress of the vaccine this year. But right now, the public isn't seeing much of the underlying data behind these candidates. So how do you go about addressing concerns that the vaccines have been rushed out? Uh, And based on what you've seen so far, what makes you confident about the process? I think it's a a really important distinction for the viewers to understand. And sometimes I think that the term Operation Warp Speed was perhaps not perfectly thought through because people seem to interpret that as being going fast and sacrificing science. That is somehow that by going fast, um, we've cut short the size and the scope of the studies that are being done. And it's really not that at all. One of the reasons that these vaccines have moved so quickly, remarkably quickly, is frankly because they didn't come out of nowhere. They're actually built on a firm foundation of science. That is, scientists have been working on this novel technology for years, looking for that first vaccine. So when it came time to think about a COVID vaccine, scientists went back to the vaccine platforms that they had been working on and said, okay, can I adapt this quickly to COVID to form a vaccine really quickly? That's true of mRNA vaccines as an example, which are the first vaccines that we expect to see. So that's the first thing. This didn't come out of nowhere. It came on a firm scientific foundation. The second thing is that um, what makes it faster is what everybody wants to know. And it's a couple things. You know, vaccine studies in general have um, places where there is a lot of work and then there's a pause for additional evaluation or um, they stop because they can't find a supply or reagent or there's some sort of shortfall. What Operation Warp Speed has taken every single piece of that equation from the beginning until now and done everything to lower any obstacles. So there's no time and space between things moving forward. If there was a shortfall of supply, Operation Warp Speed um, helped to, to, to improve it. They've helped to um, make those clinical trials go as fast as possible. But again, not, not sacrificing um, size and scope. For me, part of the reason I have confidence in these vaccines is because I have confidence in the process. And that's from somebody who really understands the process. So these um, clinical trials are the same size and scope of any trial that goes on in vaccines in the United States. The vaccine trial has been overseen by an independent group of experts that's called um, a Data Safety Monitoring Board. They're the first ones that see the clinical trial data And then when it's passed off to FDA, FDA scientists don't just review in detail all the data that they're given, they actually reanalyze the data themselves to make sure that they agree with every bit of it. And then it goes to FDA's advisory committee, their VERPAC, which is meeting this Thursday. They review the data and they do it in plain air. It's televised so that the public can actually see. Once they authorize the vaccine, then it comes to CDC Our scientists review the data, and then our advisory committee reviews the data in public, again, so that everybody sees it. And this may seem excessive, but it's a series of checks and balances designed on purpose to make sure that nothing falls through the cracks. And also it's part of our commitment to the American public that we're gonna be sure that these vaccines are safe and effective before we roll them out. 
as you just mentioned, the, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are undergoing FDA review in the coming weeks. We received this question ahead of our event. Please explain how the vaccine does not change our human DNA. You know, I chuckled at this question and I got a, 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 a I would say a question in the same vein this weekend, you know, somebody asked me, okay, but you know, are there plant and animal extracts involved with this vaccine? Like, do I, do I want to take that? So I was wondering if you could just briefly answer <laughs> that question about changing our human DNA and explain some of the fundamentals behind mRNA vaccines and how they're yeah, delivered. I'm happy, to, <laughs> I'm happy to do this at a high level. Um, <laughs> you know, I think there's something about these vaccines being new new technology that sort of people find disconcerting. But an mRNA vaccine is still a vaccine. You will roll up your arm and get the vaccine in your muscle like you get your flu vaccine. But then when the vaccine, the mRNA vaccine gets into your muscle, what it does basically is it gives instructions to our cells to produce something called a spike protein. And a spike protein is similar to what's on the outside of the COVID virus. So it produces a spike protein and it's a way to basically teach your body to produce an immune response to protect against the spike protein. So once that teaches your body to produce that immune response, if down the road, weeks, months later, you actually get exposed to the COVID virus, your body says, aha, I recognize that and I know how to produce an immune response. I'm gonna produce that response and stop that virus um, in its tracks. You can't get COVID from an mRNA vaccine um, any more than you can get flu from the influenza vaccine. It's just a way to sort of teach the body more quickly so that it's prepared if it gets exposed to the virus. Are there any possible adverse effects from taking a COVID-19 vaccine if you've already caught the disease and had you know, a mild case, but a strong immune response? So there's a theoretical um, response and a practical response. Theoretically, the scientists that know this disease have worried about this and thought about this, don't believe that there's a serious harm. Practically, in the clinical trial, I understand that they excluded people who were infected at the moment that they were enrolled in the trial, but that there were some people in the clinical trials who had, had COVID in the past and had antibody levels. And that certainly something um, that the scientists who are going to be reviewing this data are going to be looking for. Equally importantly, I think, is the question of, well, what does this mean down the road? How do I know how long the vaccine is gonna last and if it's gonna protect me forever? The truth is we don't know that. And this is not surprising. There are always things that we don't know at the moment a vaccine is authorized or licensed because a clinical trial as big as it is is different than rolling out the vaccine in the entire public. That's why it's so important that we study the vaccine. So we're going to be carefully studying this vaccine to see how well it works in the public once it's implemented, but also to be looking at those important questions. We're going to get some data from the clinical trial about disease, but we all wanna know, does it protect you more against severe disease than mild disease? Does it protect you both from getting ill and from transmitting? And does it protect you long-term or does the immunity wear off over time? Those are the kind of questions that are incredibly important. That's why we've set up a whole series of investigations that we'll be launching as soon as the vaccines are started. What about for those with autoimmune disease or reactive immune systems? You know, should they take 
this vaccine at this point, or do they need to wait a little while for more data to roll in? What we have so far is the clinical trial data, a limited group of people who got the vaccine. It's a large size, but it doesn't allow us to evaluate every permutation of each individual's decision. So what I would tell anybody is, if you have questions or concerns, you need to talk to your own healthcare provider. Your own healthcare provider will be best equipped to help you make decisions about what the best thing is for your own health. Do we know what type of protection we're seeing with these front runners? Do they only stop the spread or do they, they knock out symptoms? Yeah, you know, I wish I could tell you that the day after you get your second shot, you could rip off that mask and hug your family. Um, but the truth is, it's probably still too soon to do that. We're gonna know whether the vaccines protect against illness, but we're not fully going to know on day one whether the vaccines protect against transmitting the virus. Most people think that there will be some level of protection against transmission and that some level of herd immunity will come from the vaccine. But frankly, after we've all been so careful for so many months, the day after you get the vaccine is not the time to risk it. So we're gonna recommend for now that everybody keeps going with masking and social distancing until we have a little more time to study it. And then as soon as possible, we will lighten up those guidelines. But now's not the time to do it. It's just too soon. So if the, if the vaccine can't stop transmission, but it can stop disease symptoms, like, so what's the value in taking it? I think a lot of people are, are asking that question. The value in taking it is that, as you said, there are an enormous number of COVID cases every day in the United States today, yesterday, tomorrow. If the vaccine can protect you from getting ill, it can dramatically decrease the number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths quickly. Most people believe, I believe, that there will be some level of protection against transmission. I just don't know whether it's complete protection or not. But if everybody got vaccinated, frankly, and we were all protected ourselves by our own vaccine, then it wouldn't matter if it was still transmitted, because if you got exposed, you wouldn't get sick. Mm -hmm. And then we, ha we have another high-level question along that line. What's the mechanism behind the possibility that a vaccine can prevent symptoms while allowing viral transmission? Yeah, think about it this way. There's different ways that um, your body protects you against serious symptoms, right? So if the virus is getting into your nose and throat, it starts there, but then it basically goes through the rest of your body. Your immune system could potentially be protecting you from the more harmful parts of COVID, but still the virus could be in your nose and throat and it's still possible that you could then transmit it. So it's the difference between having the virus somewhere and sort of being fully infected by the virus. I guess that's one way to think about it. And, you know, there are other vaccines with other diseases where the virus, where the um, a vaccine protects you from getting sick, but you can still transmit it to someone else. And so it's not just theoretical, there actually are other diseases where that's true. Now, again, frankly, I think there's a lot of reason to be hopeful that this vaccine will also protect against transmission. We want to be sure before we tell people to take off their masks. What are some examples of those diseases, just so that way people know? I would use as an example of the other side, Mophilus influenza B vaccine. I mean, what we frequently find with vaccines is that they're licensed based on safety and effectiveness, 
but it isn't until you implement it that you actually find out that vaccinating of one population protects others. So for example, um, vaccinating um, for pneumococcal disease, vaccinating kids actually protects um, older adults from getting exposed to the bacteria. So the problem is we mostly find out those things after we start implementing them. We don't know it for certain because of the way the clinical trials are set up. And that's a great setup for a question that we got from the chat. We have three to four solid vaccine candidates within a year. Most phase three safety trials last a year. And you know the whole clinical process usually lasts six to 10 years. By accelerating this process, are we losing out on long-term safety data? And I think along, also along those lines, if we do find something once we start to give the vaccine to more people, is there any flexibility in you know, changing the dosing regimen, adding a booster? Can we do anything like that after the trials are complete or do we have to go back and start the trials over? I'm gonna start with the first part of that question before I get to your addition. I think safety is one of the most important things that we need to do around these vaccines. So I talked a little bit about the checks and balances that are in place before a vaccine is authorized and recommended. But what folks need to know is that from the moment that the vaccine starts rolling out, we continue to monitor safety. And that's true, not just for COVID vaccine, but for every vaccine that's used routinely in the United States. We never stop evaluating the safety of those vaccines. In the United States, we have one of the most, if not the most robust safety system in the entire world. Um, we take this responsibility really seriously. And because of COVID and the development of these vaccines and the concern about safety, we've taken those systems which start out as being really robust and actually enhanced them. We've looked across all the safety systems that we generally use in the US and we've really um, uh, incorporated them into a single system that is much more seamless. And we looked for weaknesses in our systems and said, okay, um, if there are weaknesses, how can we strengthen those systems? The size of the clinical trial is similar or bigger than other clinical trials, but you're, um, the question is correct. Frequently, there's a longer lag time between the time the clinical trial ends and the time that the vaccine is rolled out. Now, in that time period, you really don't generally see the occurrence of new side effects, but we wanna be sure, and that's why the safety plan is so robust. But there's a caveat that it's important for you all to know about. In order to really monitor safety in the period of time initially after the vaccines are rolled out, we need the help of you and all the people that are getting the vaccine. So if you are in that first group of people that get the vaccine, what we're asking you to do is to report to us through a program called vSafe any side effects that you experience from the vaccine. You report them in, it's a text-based system. And then if it's a significant side effect, you're gonna call back from us where we ask you more questions. We're really gonna need everybody to understand the importance of this early phase, because I don't wanna wait for systems to let us know six months from now if there's a problem. I wanna know in the first couple weeks. And in order to do that, we really are gonna need the help of those people who are getting the vaccine first. There have been thousands of papers published this year on COVID-19 alone. What tips would you give to normal people who want to 
assess this data for themselves? You know, how do they make sense of the wide world of antibody profiles and T cell responses? Where should they go for information once the vaccine is approved? Yeah. Um, you know, another sort of thing that happens because we're doing everything quickly, we're trying to get the vaccine out quickly. And I think that's really important. We have this important tool. We need to get it to the people who need it quickly. But typically after a vaccine is licensed and recommended, there are weeks or even months before it hits a provider shelf and before patients are faced with the question of whether they should get the vaccine. And we use that time to educate people. We use it to educate healthcare providers. We use it to educate the public. We really try to make sure that those messages get out before you show up at your doctor's office and have to make a decision. Um, but in this case, we're moving much more rapidly. And there's a good reason for that, but it does foreshorten the period of time that we have to educate. And that's why it's really important that we have information readily available. You can find it on our website. And that information is going to be updated, frankly, every other day until we get to a place where there's enough information for people to understand the vaccines. So you asked me about mRNA vaccines. If you go to the CDC website and you click on COVID and you click on vaccines, you find a whole couple pages that really describe the mRNA vaccines. We're really going to need people to be proactive about educating themselves. We're getting um, packets of information ready for healthcare providers. Even with all the questions these days about, um, about science, in fact, if you ask anyone who they trust most to help them make healthcare decisions, their own healthcare provider ends up at the top of that list. And so it's gonna be really important for us at CDC to educate healthcare providers so that then patients can ask their healthcare provider you know, any questions that they have. Another thing that I would say is that um, these vaccines can protect the individual, but if we really wanna stop this pandemic, the way that we do it by, by getting lots of people vaccinated. And that means that people have to feel confident getting the vaccine. So people who are listening to this, people who are tuned in, if you can get educated about the process and the vaccines, you can help educate your family and your community. I think in many ways, people really trust the people in their community that they know to help inform them in addition to their healthcare provider. And so we can all be really important parts of that link. Not everybody's gonna to go to the CDC website and really try to understand all the available information. But if you are, and you can take the time to understand the science, you know, I hope that you'll then educate five more people and then five more besides that. And hopefully as the time that the vaccines become available gets closer, folks will feel good about rolling up their sleeves. So you mentioned confidence. What do we know about the side effects that we've seen from um, the, the, the front runner vaccines? And along those lines, how do the side effects break down versus, you know, the, with just the first dose uh, versus what happens after the second dose? What should people expect? The point of a vaccine is to stimulate your body's immune response. That's the whole reason you get vaccinated but it also can mean that there are some side effects from that vaccine. Now, the precise data on the phase three clinical trials in the United States should be made public later this week from the Pfizer vaccine at the, at the FDA's advisory committee meeting, which is scheduled for Thursday. 
and the Moderna vaccines um, meeting is scheduled for um, an, uh, 10 days later. But based on what we've seen so far, including the data from the earlier studies and the data from the UK, here's what people should expect. These vaccines will have side effects in some people. Some people will be fine, but some people will have side effects. Most of those side effects will be mild or moderate. That means they'll last for a few days. And the kind of side effects that we're seeing so far are a sore arm, muscle aches, fatigue, and some people are even reporting that they have fever that lasts for a few days after the vaccine. Most um, of the data so far suggests that the number of people that have those side effects is more after the second dose than it is after the first dose. You take one dose, you have a certain level of protection. You take a second dose, you have even more protection. Do we have a good sense of um, what those two stages of protection are like? And if we do have people who you know, don't follow up, forget about taking, getting the second shot, um, what happens then? You know, like what's the value of getting the, the two doses based on what we know? You need to take both shots of this vaccine. You know, this vaccine is a precious commodity. Getting the vaccine in my mind right now is a gift. And if you're lucky enough to get um, that, that first vaccine, you don't want to waste it by not getting a second shot. You do need to get a second shot of the exact same vaccine that you got the first time. So if you get the Pfizer vaccine, you need the Pfizer vaccine again. Get the Moderna vaccine, you need the Moderna vaccine again. Some of the vaccines that are coming down the road may only be one dose vaccine, but these first two vaccines are two dose vaccines and you need both. I think there will be some data presented at the FDA's meeting and the CDC's meeting later this week about how much protection there is between those first two doses, but it's a limited period of time. So if you get your first shot on day one and your second shot at either day 21 or 28, there may be some protection in those limited three or four weeks, but we have no idea if you got the first shot, whether you'd have any protection three or four months later. So it's really important to get that second shot and to get it on time as much as possible. Um, there is some data, I think, on people who are a few days late, but frankly, there's really limited data. And so we really want people to focus on getting themselves that second shot on time in order to facilitate that, the health departments, um, and, and healthcare systems, a lot of them are actually scheduling you. So when you go in to get your first dose, we'll schedule you for your follow-up appointment to get your second dose. I think that's a really great way of being sure that, that you're getting it at the right interval. So bottom line, where I finished, if you get the first dose, please get the second dose. How are we tracking those two doses? You know, I saw a picture of you know, a little uh, note card where we're, you know, we're filling out the dates when you're supposed to follow up. And uh, my, immediate my immediate thought was, oh, it's 2020. Like, I'm surprised we're not using smartphones or automatic alerts or, I mean, you know, what's sort of being discussed in terms of, you know, really making sure that, that people follow up, like what type of tactics, what type of tools? All the things that you mentioned, it is um, 2020 and we're using, um, uh, text messaging, smartphone apps, um, all the modern technologies that you could possibly imagine um, jurisdictions are using. And I hope every single one of those works. But the cards are a backup system. If nothing else works, 
if if you you know if you lose your phone or if you're not a technology person and frankly you don't carry a cell phone, I don't want there to be anybody who has any question of what vaccine they got and when they're due again. So those cards are a tried and true, old-fashioned perhaps, but <laughs> tried and true approach. And so we're giving out cards too. It's a safety mechanism. Again, try the fancy stuff. I hope it works, but. As a last resort, at least you'll have a card and you know what vaccine you got and you know when you're due again. This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. Everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed, no matter where you live, what you look like, or how modest your beginnings. But how do you create access to that opportunity so people have a chance to discover their promise and reach their full potential? The Walton Family Foundation believes in the power of opportunity to transform lives, build strong communities, and protect a natural world that sustains us all. For more than three decades, the foundation has been inspired by those who never see a challenge without striving to overcome it, those whose inventions are driven by necessity, the dreamers, the doers, those who are closest to the problem because they are closest to the solution. Opportunity thrives in healthy environments environments, it withers in ailing ones. Opportunity should never be limited by geography. No one ever solved a big problem by thinking small. It's never easy to overcome difficult challenges. It takes time and steady resolve. One thing is true, everyone deserves an opportunity to succeed. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And so, you know, we've talked about how the vaccines work. We talked about why people should take them. We've talked about, you know, the importance of two doses. Multiple groups have called for a national communication plan for the COVID-19 vaccine. Is this something the CDC is working on? And has the Biden transition team contacted you to begin work on such a, on such a plan? So HHS has the lead for the, um, for the communication campaign. CDC's focus and my focus is on education, educating providers, educating health departments, and educating our vast array of partners so that they can then turn around and educate their their populations. We're turning out lots of materials at, at sort of every way that you can possibly slice it, lots of stuff online, lots of social media. Our focus is on really those educational materials that can be used sort of all the way down the chain. And, you know, as I said, things are moving really quickly. That material is gonna have to get pushed out really quickly. We're really trying to make sure that healthcare providers and health departments have the information that they need so that they can educate people before they get vaccinated. So we're in a a global competition, I think, for these, these vaccine supplies, you know, what is CDC doing? What is HHS doing to ensure that we um, you know, are the first country to get the batches as they start to roll out um, from these manufacturers? So the, um, the negotiations with the pharmaceutical companies about doses was, is actually being done by Operation Warp Speed and that's the DOD HHS partnership. For our part at CDC, you know, our part is really doing the science. And so we're collaborating across the globe with other scientists in the same positions that we are to make sure that we can take advantage of their science and they can take advantage of ours. 
that's a scientific exchange that, you know, is sort of the bedrock of the kind of work that I do. You know, really important as we roll out these vaccines, for example, for the countries that are rolling them out early, gathering data and sharing that data so that we can all learn from it. And say we have, you know, a vaccine candidate that is 95% effective, and then we have another that is 70% effective. Do you want to talk about, sorry, I should say efficacy. Do you want to talk about how efficacy works and in a situation where, say, we have access to both, how we'll go about deciding who gets which one? Effectiveness in this setting is a little complicated. So when we license the vaccines or when FDA authorizes the vaccines, FDA authorizes or license the vaccines, they're going to have an estimate of effectiveness of the vaccines based on the clinical trials. And think of effectiveness as sort of the risk of getting COVID if you're vaccinated compared to people who aren't. So a clinical trial randomizes people, some get the vaccine and some don't. And you're comparing the risk of getting COVID in those two groups. You get an estimate of the effectiveness, that's the 75% versus the 95%. But around that, there's a confidence interval as there isn't anything in statistics. And especially in these early days with the size of the clinical trials, some of those confidence intervals can be really wide and it's not clear if those point estimates are significantly different or not. In addition, it's a single estimate. It's not an estimate in every sector and piece of the population with all of the caveats that how vaccines may behave differently in different groups. So that's why it's gonna be so important to study the vaccines, not just at the point of authorization or licensure, but forever on. Um, but back to your actual question, which is if there is differential effectiveness, you know, how do you make the recommendations? That's why I'm grateful that we have an advisory committee. So CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices has been in place for 50 years. This is a group of independent scientific experts, and they're vetted to make sure that they don't have a conflict of interest. They're experts in immunology, pediatrics, adult medicines, vaccine side effects. We actually also have one member of the group that's a member of the public. And then they're surrounded by um, stakeholders. The, the group around them is the group that actually is responsible for implementing the um, vaccine recommendations. Their input is incredibly valuable. So if we have an issue like that, we'll be going to our advisory committee and saying, here's the profile of these two different vaccines. Please tell us how you recommend we use them. Once the advisory committee makes a recommendation for a vaccine, how does it affect its availability under Medicare, Medicaid, you know, private insurance or the different insurance plans that we have? You know, how does it affect its availability to people and how will they pay for it? Okay, so the ACIP recommendations and the cost or payment for the vaccines in some ways are different issues. What I would say is that the U.S. government has purchased these vaccines at least this first year of vaccine, so there's no cost to the vaccine for anybody. In addition, the vaccines are going to be free of charge for the administration. So when you um, when you get a vaccine, there's two different costs. One is the cost of the actual vaccine, and the other is an administration fee. And in this setting, um, there will be no cost to people to get the vaccine, no copays, free of charge completely, no matter what your insurance or no matter if you don't have any interest. Michael Mina at Harvard has been, uh, a, I think, an important voice and a loud advocate for um, daily at-home tests. 
you know, he says that we can get the pandemic under control if we could just get these tests out to people. What are your thoughts on those tests? Is, is the CDC um, working on exploring these rapid tests for, for daily use, for at-home use? What should people expect going forward for these tests you know, that are under development? Yeah, I know that there are a variety of experts who are advocating for more available tests and that some of these tests may be less sensitive and less specific, but if they're widely available, they can be an important tool. I know that folks at CDC are assessing them. For me, my focus on the last six months has really been on getting these vaccines, getting the country ready um, for the availability of the vaccines. I think for me, um, with everything else that's going on and with the disease rates going up, these vaccines are a ray of light at the end of a long tunnel, and they really will be a game changer if we can roll them out successfully and use them successfully. And if people are confident and willing to get vaccinated, I think it's the game changer. And so for me, my focus is very much on, on the vaccines. During the Ebola outbreaks, I think, you know, the United States response was what I would have expected, right? You know, I think we really, um, you know, were able to, to head to Africa and really apply the decades-long history of public health that we've sort of developed here in this nation. So what has this year sort of been like for you? given that, um, you know, given where we are right now? Yeah, I mean, it's been a hard year for me. Um, it's been hard to live through this. I, um, I struggled with the daily practices that make life um, complicated and difficult. Um, the social distancing, the masking, CDC campus is deserted. We've had to learn to work differently. I have school-age kids. They've had to learn to go to school differently. And We've had to be thoughtful and careful about everything in our day-to-day -day life, things that I used to think were easy or harder. But then I think about the millions of people who have had COVID and all the people, including my friends who have had um, family members and friends die from COVID this year or get seriously ill. And frankly, my daily inconveniences seem like nothing compared to that. For me, and one of the reasons that I have really been so focused on these vaccines for the past six months is that I've really felt like a vaccines are the way that we can get out of this. And it's really been great. I have this incredible team at CDC of committed technical experts and scientists who have been working every day, weekends and nights, to get ready for the moment that we're at now where we're on the verge of a vaccine that can get us all back to normal. And it really has been those people, that team, um, as well as my friends and my family and my community that have kept me working hard every day because, you know, I really feel like we can all be part of the solution if we just keep moving forward and if we just keep working together. Frankly, it's the hope of the vaccine and the hope of getting us through this that's kept me moving forward all year. I follow you on Twitter. Um, on March 30th, he tweeted, thank you to all the healthcare workers that are working around the clock to care for and protect for our loved ones every day. We appreciate all that you do, National Doctors' Day. I think healthcare workers um, in this country are about to go through a, a fairly dark period. How do we support them? Yeah, I think you're right. The healthcare workers are the heroes of this pandemic. They put themselves in the front every day. It's been a year and they're still going into work, putting themselves at risk. 
It's one of the reasons I'm so excited that our advisory committee recommended that healthcare workers be first in line for the vaccine. I think the availability of that vaccine can really help them um, to be able to continue to do their jobs, but dramatically lower the risk. What can we do for them? You know, if you have a friend who's a healthcare worker or a neighbor, what you can do for them is stay safe yourself. What will make all of their lives easier? If there are less COVID patients in the country, less hospitalizations, less people to take care of. And the way that we do that, you know, I know it's fatiguing and I know it's not exciting, but frankly, we know what works. We've proven what works. Stay at home, wearing a mask. If we keep doing those things, that's going to help our friends and our colleagues, the healthcare workers, until we can get all of us towards a vaccine. So I really hope everyone will take that to heart. We celebrate our healthcare workers, and the way that we celebrate them is by staying out of healthcare unless we need it. What should the public expect from the CDC going forward into next year? What are your hopes for next year? What's your timeline on the return to normal? and herd immunity. Um, I think people really want to, to know that there's some light at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, what are the things, three things that you're looking forward to, to next year? You know, when I walk into the office at CDC, which I um, do maybe once a week, there's a pledge on the wall in big letters. It's the CDC pledge to the American public. And one of the things it says is that we base all public health decisions on the highest quality scientific data that is derived openly and objectively, we place the benefit to society above the benefit to our own institution. What I hope for next year is that um, CDC and our staff will be able to communicate regularly and consistently across all levels of the government. And that by doing that, by being transparent about the vaccine process, we will be able to regain the trust of the American public. I hope transparency through the vaccine process will encourage people to get vaccinated. Um, I think that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but people do need to understand that the tunnel is longer than they might expect. The rollout of the initial vaccines, I hope um, we will all celebrate it, but vaccines won't be available to everyone until late spring, even early summer. So we're going to need to be patient. And I know that's hard for all of us because all of us are anxiously awaiting an end to this. And maybe my, my final thing is that um, I've worked at CDC for 25 years. I've worked on a lot of vaccines. We are going to do everything we can to make this rollout of vaccines as smooth as possible. There are going to be bumps in the road, and I think people need to expect it. You know, one of the groups that is queued up to get vaccine early are the residents of long-term care facilities. They're getting vaccine early because they're among the most fragile. 40% of deaths have been in those populations. But they are medically fragile. If we vaccinate in a nursing home on Monday and somebody dies on Wednesday, it will be a terrible tragedy, but it may, it's likely not related to the vaccine. And so I hope that people will try to not jump to conclusions, try not to buy into myths and misinformation, to really look for trusted sources of data to get us through the next six months, and to stick together. I mean, I really think we can get through this. We just need to keep sticking together.
Dr. Nancy Messonnier is the director of the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases. She leads the CDC's COVID-19 vaccine efforts, including the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. As part of her many leadership roles during her 25 years at CDC, she's worked to strengthen public trust in vaccines and prevent vaccine-preventable disease outbreaks. Award-winning journalist Seekon Akpan is a science editor at National Geographic and has a doctorate in pathobiology. Previously, he created the PBS NewsHour YouTube series, Science Scope. Their conversation was recorded earlier this week. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Shauna Lewis. It was co-hosted by the Aspen Institute Science and Society Program and LeapsMag. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. This podcast is supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The Walton Family Foundation is, at its core, a family-led foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities. The foundation partners with others to make a difference in K-12 education, the environment, and its home region of northwest Arkansas and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta. Learn more at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.